we gather together to not only be united in our praise of the Lord at the present moment, but so that we'll be reminded today that our worship of God is with every waking moment that he has given us. When I was praying with my girls last night at bedtime, I happened to to say in my prayer, Lord, help us to honor you tomorrow if you should give us tomorrow. (laughs) And then after I ended that prayer, my youngest said, Dad, what did you mean by that? (laughs) And I said, well, tomorrow isn't guaranteed for any one of us. We desire to serve the Lord with every breath that he has so graciously given us, not only given us physical life, but even more importantly, giving us spiritual life. So he's the reason we're gathered together today. We're continuing in our study of the book of Acts. So as you turn to Acts chapter 4 in your Bibles, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, you are a God of all glory and grace, worthy of all of our worship. We thank you for your perfect will. We thank you for giving us your perfect son. We thank you for the presence of your Holy Spirit. We pray that you will change us from the pages of your word this morning. In the name of our Lord, we pray. Amen. Recall that on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples and caused all of them to praise God in the native tongues of various Jews who were there uh, from their, their different birthplaces. And Peter preached the first Christian sermon to the people who gathered. It resulted in God adding 3,000 believing souls to the 120 original disciples. And now, following another healing miracle by the Holy Spirit through Peter and John to heal a man lame from birth, another crowd had gathered to them. And Peter proclaimed Jesus as Lord yet again from Solomon's portico at the temple. But there comes at this point an interruption to this proclamation and invitation. Chapter 4, verse 1, and as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. And just so, the opposition which targeted Jesus is now transferred to the apostles. But rising opposition isn't the only result we see in verses 1 to 4. It reveals two different responses to Peter proclaiming Christ. Some respond with hostility, 
Others respond with humility. Some oppose the gospel because they remain willfully blind, hard-hearted, and arrogant. Others receive Jesus with glad hearts because God graciously humbles them, granting them repentance and faith. And now there are some questions we can answer from the verses we're looking at as we're talking about these two different results. Who are the opponents? What do we see in the verses about these opponents? Well, the priests would have been those from the line of Aaron of the tribe of Levi, whom God had set apart now for generations to serve him in leading the worship and the sacrifices. They were to be intermediaries between God and the people. The ones mentioned here are undoubtedly those who are on duty at the time. The commotion caused by the miracle and the preaching is likely the reason then that the priests involved the captain or chief of the temple. He was second in command only to the high priest. He was charged with keeping order and peace at the temple and in its proceedings, and he would have had temple guards at his disposal. The third group named uh, by Luke are representatives from among the Sadducees, who were one of the three main schools involved in Jewish religious practice and politics. At this time, it appears that the Sadducees were well-connected to the Jewish aristocracy, and so they had many of the people in power in social and civil ranks might have been uh, with the Sadducees, or at least the Sadducees had, had a close relationship to them. They were also the ones who opposed teaching the resurrection of the dead, which makes perfect sense in this context. And that leads us to another question to answer here. What is it that they oppose? What is it that causes them to be, quote, greatly annoyed? They're irked. They're greatly irritated. The first thing they seem to have a problem with is that the apostles are teaching many people. And these apostles don't have any training or sanctioning from the religious authorities or from the temple authorities. And yet, here they are teaching publicly to large audiences. The temple leaders are coming to realize the previous hullabaloo wasn't a one-off. The thing that happened at Pentecost wasn't just a one-time thing and it's over, not, not to happen anymore. No, this is persisting. These guys are at it again, and undoubtedly, they are beginning to gather a following. Secondly, they're not just teaching the same thing that the Pharisees would have taught, that there is a future resurrection of the dead in the eschaton in the last days. They're actually proclaiming that the resurrection to life is only made possible by the very real resurrection that Jesus already experienced. It's like... I, I picture them saying to themselves, oh boy, we thought we were done with this Jesus when we made sure the Romans put him on a cross. And we know he was confirmed as dead and placed in a tomb, but then that tomb turned up to be empty, and we've been crossing our fingers knowing that we might just have a problem. And how do they handle those whom they oppose? How does this group handle their opposition. Well, here we see the MO, the modus operandi of all who cling to their power and authority. First, 
They use their position to intimidate and threaten. As they do in this section of Acts with the believers, first you see if you can shut them up by throwing your weight around. You're a smart car, we're a semi-truck, get out of our way. Next, the next thing they can try is spreading lies. They have a position of authority and influence and they can spread lies. If that doesn't work, try to manipulate the situation so as to have something legitimate sounding to bring your opponent down. And finally, if all else fails, make sure they stop breathing. That's how they treated Jesus. But these people that they're, they're going to have to deal with are literally eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. A bit of threatening, lying, and manipulation won't work. Even killing some of us won't work. We know where we're going, and we know whose side we're on. So by the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus is going to keep building his church. If death could not hold him, no opposition can hold him down. The church will continue to grow. So as a bit of application inserted here, we as believers must take a biblical view of such opposition to the gospel. Opposition is confirming. Opposition creates opportunity. Opposition is in God's control. When I think about opposition, my mind often goes quickly to 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Because it's a reminder that opposition is inevitable. But it isn't just inevitable. It's, in fact, confirming. Consider a couple of other passages also. Matthew 5, verses 10 to 12, Jesus said to his followers, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Opposition for the sake of Christ is a confirmation that you are, in fact, on God's side. Here's another verse, John 15, 20. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Here is confirmation again that you belong to your master, Jesus Secondly, here is confirmation that persecutors are opposing God ultimately and not us. And finally, there is confirmation that God is drawing his own to himself through the message that we proclaim in spite of opposition. So too, here are some quick examples that opposition creates opportunity for gospel advance. In the very next verses, Peter gets to preach the gospel to the whole Sanhedrin, to the highest level of religious leadership in all of Israel. And then soon in Acts, we'll observe that it is persecution that brings about the gospel spread beyond Jerusalem, as Jesus promised. Toward the end of Acts, we'll see the fulfillment of Paul's own desire to preach Christ in Rome, but that such opportunity arises when he is carried there under duress, awaiting trial before Caesar. 
My third thought here about opposition is one of comfort, because we know God is in control. He is sovereign. God is providentially controlling both the opposition we face as well as continuing to make disciples of Jesus. So opposition confirms our standing in Christ. Opposition creates opportunities for gospel advance. And I didn't talk about this, but it creates opportunities for our own spiritual growth. And then also we have comfort when opposition arises because we trust God's control in all things. So we see in verse 4 of our text this very thing. While opposition commences against the apostles, what's God doing? God is bringing people to saving faith in Jesus. How has God chosen to accomplish this? How has God chosen to bring people to saving faith in Jesus? He does so through the message of Jesus declared by his followers in the power of the Holy Spirit. So what's the word that they hear? The word they hear is that Jesus is Lord. He is Lord in Christ, through whom God offers forgiveness to those who repent and believe. But he is also the one through whom God will judge those who reject grace and insist on self-righteousness. And by grace, by God's grace, some do believe. In this case, many, a large number, believe. The total count of disciples rises to 5,000 men making the actual total much higher than that. If you include women and children, the number may be a well above 10,000 people now. Here's one more thing that really intrigues me in this summary statement that Luke gives in verse 4. Do you notice that it's precisely while Peter and John are being hauled off to be intimidated that many more people are responding in belief? I'm just picturing this in my mind, and I love it. The two most prominent apostles are arrested and put in custody. In other words, they're jailed overnight. But the rest of the apostles and the disciples are still there. No doubt they're answering questions, they're clarifying, they're teaching, and they're explaining to the new believers what the next steps are for being involved and connected to the new community in Christ. Peter and John just got put in jail overnight. So where where are Peter and John now? Let's continue reading in chapter 4, beginning in verse 5. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That reply is truly astonishing. 
that reply is truly compelling. How does it come about that Peter is able to give such a bold answer under pressure? Boldness is important not just in this section of Acts. We'll see it again as we continue in verse 13 next week. But boldness is conceptually critical in all of Acts. But before we can get to where this boldness comes from and what that empowering emboldens us to answer, we need to first look at verses 5 and 6 to see the group who does this interrogating and what their primary question is, which creates the opportunity for Peter to answer. Who is it who gathers for this high-pressure interrogation? In the text, the rulers and the elders and the scribes is almost certainly a reference to the Sanhedrin, the 71-member ruling body that served as the highest Jewish court in the land. This, the name Council is referenced again in verse 13, which is, or 15, I'm sorry, which is another indication that this is the Sanhedrin. All or most of its members would likely have been present to question Peter and John. Imagine yourself being questioned before the Supreme Court. A pretty intense interrogation. Those mentioned in verse 6 are are those of the high priestly household, quote, all who were of the high priestly family. Although Caiaphas was the official high priest at this time, his father-in-law, Annas, was the former high priest who was still highly influential and apparently retained the title after leaving office, much like our U.S. presidents still retain the title of Mr. President. But more than that, He seems to be the controlling personality involved in these situations, and his name is mentioned first. The other two figures are completely unknown to us, John and Alexander, unless this John is the same Jonathan who becomes the next high priest in AD 37. Now, what else is there to say about this band of leaders? These are the very same ones who only months earlier had arrested Jesus tried him before this very same Sanhedrin, and then delivered him up to Pilate and demanded that he be executed. Are Peter and John aware of that fact? You know they are. This situation is intimidating and potentially life-threatening. What is the line of questioning from these interrogators? By what power or by what name did you do this? The this clearly refers to healing a man who had never walked a day in his life, who apparently now stands in their midst. Verse 9, this man. They're talking about him, and there he is as evidence. And that's one of the things we're going to focus on next week is the very problematic evidence that the Sanhedrin has to deal with that speaks for itself. There he is. We, the readers of Acts, know that Peter had already declared that the power for for all of these things came through the Holy Spirit whom Jesus had given them. He says this in chapter 2, verse 33. He says it again in chapter 3, verses 12 and 16. This is the very same power by which Jesus had performed his miracles and taught with such authority. It is the power and authority of God by the presence of the Holy Spirit of God. Peter and John 
have no power and authority of their own, but Jesus does, and Jesus has given them his authority. By what name did you do this? See, I think these religious leaders already know the answer to the second part of the question, too. By what name? They are likely confirming what they already suspect and they've been hearing is going on. It's no wonder that they're greatly annoyed. They tried killing Jesus, and their Jesus problem is only getting bigger. That's true precisely because Jesus didn't stay dead. Now to these questions, Peter gives an astonishingly direct and powerful answer without being disrespectful. He says, rulers of the people and elders. But before we get to his answer, where does Peter's boldness come from? I know it's hard for us to relate to this because Peter has always proven to be a model of spiritual bravery. It's not like these chosen apostles all fled when Jesus was arrested and that Peter denied that he knew Jesus even to a servant girl. Oh, wait. In the flesh, Peter isn't courageous. If we think we're courageous in the flesh, there's actually a better word for that biblically. It's called foolish. David killed the giant not because he was confident Goliath was actually a big teddy bear. Sure, David's practice made him confident in his skill with a sling, but more importantly, David was ferociously zealous for the glory of his God, in whom he had complete confidence. I fear that I too have, been, have not been a model of courage. God is using this text in my life as we speak. So where did Peter get the courage to speak so boldly? Where will I get the courage to not fear man, but to be bold about truth in one-on-one -on -one scenarios and in smaller groups and not only in the pulpit? By the filling of the Spirit, being controlled by the Spirit. Remember these promises from Jesus? Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. That's the thesis statement for the book we're studying. Earlier, Jesus had also comforted and promised his disciples the following, Luke chapter 12. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. They have the indwelling Spirit of God, and they need to be yielding, controlled by that Spirit. So with the Spirit-empowered courage and confidence to speak, to act in spite of the danger, how does Peter answer? Well, the implications of the situation and the question lead Peter to naturally focus on Jesus. By what name did you do this? Is to Peter what a fastball right down the middle is for Aaron Judge? Why, yes, thank you, I will hit this pitch. Who is the source of this man's healing, Peter might ask? Jesus Christ of Nazareth. 
Look again at verses 9 and the beginning of 10. If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, and then the end of verse 10, by him this man is standing before you well. And who is the foundational one whom you rejected? Whom you crucified? The risen Jesus. Whom God raised from the dead. This Jesus, or literally this one, is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Peter is quoting Psalm 118, verse 22, that says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is literally the perfect indictment of the religious leaders. The promised Messiah came, and you rejected and killed him. However, this Lord lives, and he is the cornerstone of his people, the new covenant church. Whose name is the only one that can save? The Lord Jesus. Peter's argument goes like this. Jesus is the reason this man is miraculously healed. But not only that, Jesus has fulfilled messianic prophecy, and so has your rejection fulfilled prophecy. But no matter how much you oppose him, you cannot win because God has exalted him and will continue to exalt him. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The verse emphasizes the exclusivity of Jesus as the only way of salvation, the only deliverance from judgment. But also implicit in this statement is an open invitation to the hearers to themselves repent of their prior rejection and be saved through Jesus. John 3.18 says, whoever condemn, excuse me, whoever believes in him, in Jesus, is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. This invitation and exclusivity of Jesus as the only way leads nicely into some concluding applications. We know that we must be marked by both truth and love. If you read John's letter that we call First John, half of the book will talk will emphasize truth and half will emphasize love. We have to be people marked by truth and love. But it isn't as if the two things are incompatible, this love and truth. Isn't it true that boldly proclaiming Christ is loving? Precisely because it is true and eternally consequential. Boldly proclaiming Christ is loving because it is true and of eternal consequence. In fact, a person's acceptance or rejection of Jesus is the single most important decision of our brief lives. Because one's relationship to God is the single most consequential element of our existence. 
Here's another question that arises from our study today. Is your loving behavior and truthful speech a great annoyance to the sin and self-righteousness of our day? Our sincere love for one another and our compassion for the hurting and the marginalized should be convicting as well as compelling. And our bold proclamation of the gospel will be a great irritation to those who want to continue in their sin and self-righteousness. But just like Christ has loved us, we must be willing to sacrifice physical comfort for the ultimate good of others. And isn't it axiomatic that courage necessarily means there exists a challenge that might cause us to cower? We all crave comfort and rest, but we might be looking for it in the wrong places. Do we seek comfort from the wrong things in this life instead of seeking the only place where we can truly have comfort and rest in God himself? And is it perhaps unfortunate, I don't think it's a coincidence that I came across an article this week that said, Christians, maybe we should stop talking about sharing Christ. The argument in the article is that we don't have any examples in the New Testament of believers sharing Christ. No, believers proclaim Christ, and it requires courage. Sharing Christ sounds a little too soft and as if it isn't really difficult and awkward to talk to people who don't really want to hear this right now. We proclaim Christ. And is your courage for the gospel a source of encouragement, a morale booster, a confidence enhancer for fellow Christians? Paul penned these words to the Philippians while under house arrest in Rome, awaiting trial before Caesar, Philippians chapter 1. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear because of Paul's example. Our testimony is not only convicting to the world, but by it, God also encourages our fellow workers to strengthen their hands. Finally then, where will you turn for courage? In whom will you trust to give you confidence to boldly speak truth? If you will pray and obey, will God give you boldness? I hope you know the answer. (laughs) You can't, but let me say this about obedience as a part of your prayer. You can't forever go on praying for courage to cross the raging sea, but never step into the boat. You can't indefinitely pray for God to strengthen your hands and never take up the oars. 
We experience the proof of God's promises when we obey. And as we obey, we pray so that we will abide in the only one who is sufficient to see us through. Let's close in prayer now. Father, we know that in our flesh, we will lack courage. So we pray that by the power of your indwelling Holy Spirit, you will give us boldness to speak the truth in love, that you will give us the very things that we ought to say to make a defense for the hope that is in us. Help us to be people who are convinced by our love for you and the change that you have wrought in our own lives that we should be proclaiming Christ to others around us. Glorify yourself in your church. Amen.